here with Samir Dosani. Uh, Samir is a um, PhD student uh, in South Africa, uh, the Institute for Economic Research on Innovation at Chwane University of Technology. Um, and Samir is also somewhat of an international man of mystery. Uh, although I guess if you're writing about all your international um experiences that will be less of a mystery um, when when your book comes out but hopefully, uh, hopefully. But, <laughs> but um but i i wanted to yeah i wanted to talk to you samir because of this paper that you wrote um that's on it's up online it's called ecological catastrophe capitalist excess or ongoing colonialism how should we understand the crisis and it just spoke to me and i, I guess you knew it would because when you sent it to me you said you know this it seems like you're thinking along the same lines. And so it was It was very much like exactly along the lines that I was thinking and a little bit advanced along the, along the road I think I was heading at. So you helped me skip a couple of uh, painful steps, I think, by, by writing this. So um, yeah, for, do you want to just set it out? I think, well, I, like I want to kind of go through each one of your framings, but sure. maybe you can uh, just start us off. Yeah, sure. So, so let me um, let me just say a couple of things. I mean, first is that um, in addition to, to being a PhD student in here in um, South Africa, I am associated with TUT. I'm also associated with the University of Western Cape. I also run a website called PeaceVigil.net, along with my partner Shudin, which focuses on some of the issues that came up in your 1857 Civilizations podcast, especially around sort of Hindu-Muslim um, unity or disunity and uh, what's going on in India these days. So that, that's been an obsession for a while. Uh, I would say one of several obsessions. And the frustrating thing, um, Justin, for me is that as someone who, um, you know, I wasn't really happy to just stay in academia and I wasn't really happy to sort of just stay in the NGO boardrooms and sort of conference centers where I easily could have. I mean, that's where I've most of my career for the past 20 years I've been working with bigger NGOs. Um, but, you know, I, I really wanted to sort of, you know, work in solidarity with communities who were struggling to achieve their human rights. And at a certain point, it just felt like banging my head against the wall um, because it felt like um, we didn't have the right framing um, to diagnose exactly what the problem we were facing. So, you know, the framing we tend to use is a framing around neoliberalism, or a framing, especially because I, I come from sort of the green movements, um, so a framing around sort of um, humans destroying the planet. And to me, unless you ask the right question, you're never going to find the right answer. So this paper was really about, can we try and ask the right question at least, guys? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I just, um, we should start with your ecological framing, because I just, um, I was just watching... Well, I, I read a, a friend, Max Blumenthal, he did this kind of defense of this movie, Planet of the Humans. And I heard of Planet of the Humans and I thought, what a stupid idea, like the idea that humans are the problem. And and I, I d decided I wasn't going to bother watching the movie. And then uh, when I saw that Max uh, liked it, uh, I, I thought I would watch it and you know, there were details in it that were good. It was a critique of these NGOs that you were talking about. You know, there are lots of problems with the ways NGOs raise their funds and 
and the whole model of like governments and NGOs doing certain operations in countries that don't have the sovereignty to protect themselves from them. But um, the overall framing was, you know, too many people on the planet and uh, we're destroying the planet. And it was like, wow, that is not um, going to get you to where you need to go at all because you're going to, you're missing the, the fact that, you know, like where in the system the urges for destroying the planet are coming from. It doesn't really have to do with, you know, overpopulation or like our urge to overpopulate ourselves and, I don't know, eat everything in our path or whatever. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a very... Yeah, I mean, what you just said, Justin, and the framing of that movie is a very old framing, right? I mean, it goes back to... um, It goes back Malthus. to some of these theories, Malthus and, and some of these theories about population, you know, density and so on. And what, what it effectively did, it was definitely the framing, you know, as I was sort of coming to consciousness in the 1980s, maybe 1990s, mm-hmm. it was definitely the sort of the mainstream framing, I would say. So when I would tell yeah, my friends... A, in, I guess in the 70s, there's Paul Ehrlich and the population bomb or whatever. And 100%. movement. Yeah, so that's probably yeah. where they was feeding into what you were... Definitely, but it was much more mainstream. So when I would tell my sort of more middle of the road kind of friends that you know I, I really wanted to work on human rights and environmental issues and so on, they would say, "Oh, that that stuff is all going to happen somewhere else. So maybe you don't have to worry." This was in Washington D.C. Um, mm-hmm. So my friends in Washington D.C. were like, "Ah, you don't have to worry about that. No, but you, they let those people in India and Bangladesh worry about that." And I was like, "But I am the people in India and Bangladesh." <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway, right. that's a different story. Um, so. Um, so that was the mainstream framing, and it, it remains it remains a current within the mainstream, although that movie was a little bit like, it shocked me a little bit to see it going that far. Um, but if you look even at yeah. the, Atten- and, I don't know if you've seen the Attenborough documentary on Netflix, the new one, um, which is no. basically a, it's I basically a kind of trailer. <laughs> okay, okay. It, it's a good I saw some kind of trailer for it. Okay. That's good. That's good. Cause I, I, cause I saw this, I saw some kind of trailer with Attenborough talking and it was like, we need to do this. We need to do that. And then as when it said, we need to lower our population, it had like basically an Indian kid, like coming out of the water. So, so yeah, so that was actually, um, that's where I, I was going to juxtapose that with, you know, this other movie, which Planet of the Humans, which I think doesn't get it right at all. So if you see the whole thing, not the trailer, the trailer is a bit unfortunate, I admit. But if you see the whole thing, it talks about how, um, you know, how did how Japan basically went to negative population growth was by was by developing, right? Was by educating, was by yeah. all these things, right? Female so, so yeah. yeah, by by women having control just like of their own basic bodies demographic control. knowledge, like stuff we've known for a long time that uh, when women have education and empowerment, they don't have high birth rates. Like it's just it's one of 100%. the most robust scientific findings that we have and yeah. planet of the humans couldn't uh, couldn't get that two sentence couldn't find one person to say like two sentences about how populations yeah. actually go down but it's a convenient myth isn't it because it allows you to shift blame from where it really belongs which we'll talk about i guess later uh, but let's just talk about the capitalist class or the one percent is clearly sort of deserving the blame in the current system without a doubt right in yeah. any no matter how you yeah. cut it um, and this allows you to shift the blame actually to the people who have the least power in our global system, right? 
So two exactly. places like Bangladesh, like parts of India, where populations are exploding because, you know, it's substantially correlated with levels of poverty and and, um, and lack of education, right? I mean, it, it, things that we've been fighting yeah. for in those countries for decades with limited success, um, you know. And also war, have, right? Like war and displacement also birth rates go up. And so I was also hoping that Planet of the Humans would say, you know, uh, birth rates are high in areas of war and displacement. So if America would just stop going to war with everybody and displacing mil- tens of millions of people, birth rates yeah. would probably go down. But obviously, they're not also yeah. going to get to that conclusion. Out of curiosity, Justin, is is the birth is the birth rate high in the parts of Africa that you've studied in the D, in the DRC and so? Yeah, on? yeah, yeah. I mean, there's Uganda's Uganda's particularly. Um, you know, if you look at a chart of the Ugandan birth rate. It's pretty incredible, or like the the Ugandan, uh, you know, population. It's uh, since Museveni came into power, it's almost. I think it's more than doubled. Like the numbers are mind boggling, and that's policy. Like Museveni, from what I've read, I read it in like Helen Epstein's book about Museveni in Uganda. But she, you know, she's got these informants who tell her that yeah, Museveni wants a big population because he wants a big army. Yeah. So, you know, it's these yeah. are like so you have you have like a U.S. ally in a, making a military calculation to, you know, raise the deliberately raise the population in a country where living standards are not high or, you know, and female empowerment certainly isn't anywhere mm. above average in Uganda. And uh, and and that that's not like, you know, that's not something the U.S. is trying to attack right that's not something environmentalists are trying to take on it's like oh this is a new african leader this is a you know this is someone we can work with so yeah yeah so the population uh, the population lens is definitely definitely wrong and i I think anyone who gives it two seconds of thought will will come to the same conclusion as, as you and i do but that's not the only i mean that's a very there's other e- there's other problems that arise from the ecological framing, just like you said. So you have carbon markets and geoengineering because it's 100%. true. If you're if you yeah, tell me about those. Tell me about your, your thoughts. Yeah, so so you know when I was at ActionAid, so so the NGO that I spent the most time with over the past few years is one called ActionAid International, which I would describe as you know among the bigger NGOs, one of the better ones, one of the ones to the to the to the left. And uh, what we started talking about, especially in the climate um, policy department, was false solutions. And if you look at what we've been able to achieve um, in terms of the international agreements, so since the Montreal Protocol, which was, I think, 1989, which outlawed um, CFCs, um, since then, we haven't had really anything that stuck. And even the proposals that haven't stuck, like at Rio or in Kyoto, Kyoto especially, what was on the table was really, as you say, carbon markets, which led to the creation of these of red, um, which is another way to sort of mm-hmm. sh- try and trade in forests and carbon markets and so on. So it, it really was, um, you know, even if it had been successfully implemented, you know, it would have taken us, I mean, not even 10 percent of the way where in the direction where we needed to go at if that. Right. Um, so yeah. there was a, a there was a gap between what was, you know, there was a gap between there's a gap in commitment. Because even Japan ended up pulling out of, of Kyoto. Um, but B, even if the gap in commitment wasn't there, there was a gap between what was committed to and what was needed. And that gap was massive, right? Yeah. 
Well, the analysis was uh, that I, you know, the summary of the analysis that I heard at the time was like, it's, they committed to cap and trade and they did a lot of trade and <laughs> really no right. cap. <laughs> yeah. They found ways, they found ways to get around the caps um, and to monetize everything, which gets into, you know, some of the stuff that's mm -hmm. later in the paper about the need to, to monetize everything. Yeah. Um, so listen, I, I was, uh, you know, I've, I've also been for much of my career, I've been sort of a World Bank watcher. Um, and mm -hmm. in 2006, um, British economist Nick Stern, who um, who was at the World Bank at the time, he did this, you know, it was massively publicized at the time. He did this evaluation of Kyoto. It was really trying to say that, you know, we really have to commit to Kyoto. This was when Kyoto was on its last legs, really. It was about to die. And it yeah. did die a few years later. Um, but what struck me about that paper was, you know, I've met Nick Stern. He's not an idiot. He's a very, very smart guy. And he has to know that some of what he's talking there is just nonsense. Like he has, he has to know that, yeah. you know, it's not there, a lot. I guess as an economist, there's no way to write about it outside of certain nonsensical assumptions, right? Like, well, I mean, I there's know, the, somehow the, 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 what, what was done in that paper was quite clever in terms of, you know, monetizing <laughs> things that usually wouldn't have, you know, wouldn't be monetized, yeah. talking about how to measure externalities. I mean, it was a very clever paper all in all. But its conclusions were not backed up by by the paper, right? So the conclusions were, mm -hmm. you know, either Kyoto or the end of the world, basically. Um, yeah, and, and that's you, another problem with this. Yeah. If if you read the paper closely, you'd be like, well, the end of the world is coming, whether Kyoto happens or not. Yeah, yeah, but that and that's but that's another problem I find, especially with environmentalist politics, is, you know everybody everybody takes for granted that the apocalypse is coming which whatever like maybe it's coming maybe it's not maybe it's going to look different than you think it is but yeah. if 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 the idea is the apocalypse is coming then any compromise any anything you do is justified in terms of stopping the apocalypse right so it's like well we're not going to overthrow capitalism we're not going to be able to do that before the apocalypse comes so we have to have markets we have to use the market you know taxes uh you know whatever it may not work so uh, you know a hard cap on things is politically infeasible and we have to stop the apocalypse so uh, yeah. that has to go so it becomes this filter uh, that you that you can use to basically discard any um, proposal that might be principled yeah. or uncompromising as not making the compromises necessary to avert the apocalypse. And that I find <laughs> strongest in uh, environmentalist thinking because it's the most apocalyptic you know, way to... I think it's... I think what you're saying is, is spot on. And, but I also think that there is a flip side of... I mean, I think there's two flip sides. One flip side of that is that if the end of the world is coming, then I might as well drive my Mercedes or whatever, right? So it yeah, to yeah, a, that's true too. Yeah, to <laughs> yeah, that's a, a good point. A, that's even worse. Least, you're right. At least to a complete nihilism, right? And that's what I hear when I talk yeah. with younger people, especially. It's like, yeah, yeah. okay, but I, I'm just trying to live, you know. Um, and yeah. and so, um, but on the flip side, I think, I think it does lead also to um, at least a binary thinking in general. So there's a certain revolutionary mm -hmm. strand of of the sort of eco-socialist strain that I, I personally identify as having come from. Um, but there's a radical strain within within that movement that sort of says, you know, it's revolution or bust. Either we're all going to be, you know, out in the bush, you know, growing our own um, yams or whatever it is, 
or <laughs> or capitalism is going to continue, right? So it's like it, it, almost right. a kind of a, a primitivist primitivist revolution. And so so the premise that you're giving that that um, you know crisis is inevitable um, mm-hmm. can be used to justify different ends. And I think what I would say is that. Yeah. What I would say is that nothing's inevitable. I mean, it's not inevitable that we're all going yeah. to wake up tomorrow morning. Um, exactly. And so therefore, exactly. what we need to talk about is probabilities and strategies. And we need to have a discussion yeah. about what strategies are actually I, going to be effective. And within that, I was we can talk about, about reform is, versus revolution yeah. as, as different lens to talk about different strategies. Yeah, I was thinking more like, because, uh, you know, I'm, there's this whole thing with Biden, right? And uh, and like you know, we have to vote for Biden. And of course, you have to vote for Biden. But it's like I'm not I'm not here to browbeat people who liked Bernie and don't like Biden, or you know, are sure. going to vote green or whatever. Because sure. you know, and it's like, oh, you want the apocalypse because you're voting green. And it's like, will there ever be a time between now and the apocalypse when it's appropriate to vote for somebody other than the Democrats in this in this view? Like, yeah. there will never be a time to build a third party. So for me, it's like, you know, probabilities and strategies. I like that framing. For me, I was just thinking like, if you if you believe the apocalypse is imminent, you're never going to think of politics in terms of like what you want or what is good to do yeah. and, and then how to do it. Like 100%. That, you know, that's, yeah. So, you know, yeah. And then the, yeah. <laughs> and then the, the, well, I was going to take us to the next thing, which is the geoengineering. Um, mm-hmm. So, Please. you know, yeah. if you think that the apocalypse is inevitable, then you also sort of give a carte blanche um, to people yeah. who have, really dumb ideas to play around with yeah. the planet. So there's a, a paper, and this is an actual legitimate academic paper, which says, you know, if a small nuclear war happened, this I think this was written around the time that, you know, one of the India-Pakistan yeah. flare-ups. So, you know, yeah. and they were sort of calculating the, the, the cost of a, of a small nuclear winter <laughs> as a way of, of countering right. um, overall global warming. And, and they ended up saying, I mean, they, without mentioning specifics, I don't think they were calling for, I don't think it was stupid enough to say, you know, India should nuke Pakistan or, or vice versa. Um, but basically they were saying if a small regional nuclear war were to happen, we could reverse, you know, 40 years of, of climate change. And that's a terrible, terrible, <laughs> terrible idea, right? Um, and there's other proposals such as sulfur right. injections in the stratosphere, um, cloud yeah, seed, yeah. seed reduce sunlight yeah. exposure. I mean, things that are just crazy. And the thing about these is that some scientists may tell me that it's not crazy, um, but they right. don't have, they cannot do a controlled experiment. They cannot create another planet. No, um, no. I to, mean, it, you know, I, yeah. I've, I've, I, yeah, I'm like my, I used to be more, I used to do more science than I have been doing for the past 10 years. But, you know, when you're around scientists enough, like the ones who really know what they're talking about, they say very little <laughs> and they say it with very little confidence. So when you hear scientists like making these huge pronouncements about what would happen in a nuclear war, they're not really talking as scientists. They're just talking as someone who has some science degrees and they just they're just sounding off about stuff they don't really know. Yeah, and often they just want to—they just want a tweet to go viral. On often, I mean, it's just yeah, yeah. Actually, a scientist here, right? So yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't trust. Uh, you know, you you can't like. Yeah, I've been thinking about this a lot. Like, you can't just trust somebody uh, on their authority because they're a scientist. Like, you have to look at 
how they came to that conclusion. That's what science is, right? Science is about like how you come to the conclusion, the evidence, the uh, alternative hypotheses, uh, and why you have landed where you've landed tentatively, because um, because no conclusion is uh, permanent. When when scientists uh, approach this without the appropriate scientific humility as well is when they, you know, they get to the, but it, it comes to these ideas that like, because we have science uh, in capital letters, we can do all kinds of things, which isn't really a scientific perspective to begin with. It's actually kind of a religious one, right? Again, yeah, 100%. Like, yeah. Yeah. So, so the flip side part of, of the apocalypse yeah. coming is like, we are God, you know, <laughs> and we, sure. uh, we determine everything. Yeah. For sure. Now, so the main professor I work with, um, Professor Rasigan Maharaj, is really his background is in um, STS, Science and Technology Studies. So mm-hmm. it's a lot of mm-hmm. a lot of philosophy of science kind of stuff, and that's definitely. I mean, we, we're agreeing. I agree with you 100. Um, percent I would even go further and say that, um, you know, I, I think that what you described as as real scientists saying very little and saying it with a lot of humility. I mean, I kind of think yeah. that's how we all should be. I mean, yeah. It, it's, <laughs> Um, yeah, you know, exactly. so, so these people, even, even I think very well-meaning people who are talking about the end of the world or talking about even things that are more mundane, Justin, like, you know, a second coming of COVID or whatever it is, it's like, dude, right. where's the evidence for some right. of this stuff? Like we, I'm not saying that there yeah. isn't any evidence, but we have to examine it, right? We have to look at it in the context of epidemiology and, and human yeah. biology. And, and so also on. like, yeah, COVID is a great, that's a great example. Cause I don't feel very, um, I don't feel like I'm able to evaluate, like, you know, people talk about this ACE2 receptor and I'm, I'm looking at the, you know, the models of the virus and I can like understand what the words mean, but I can't, I haven't been steeped in like what kinds of receptors are on what kinds of viruses, <laughs> you know, I don't know how to evaluate a claim like that. Right. It's just, uh, yeah. But fair enough. Just, and I think, I think there is a role for es- expertise, but I also think that, yeah. you know, if it's a, if it's a valid enough hypothesis, yeah. right. Or if yeah. we say, okay, right. lung, ca- you know, smoking causes lung cancer, right. That's something we can yeah. look at the data <laughs> yeah. and we can come to our conclusions and, and our conclusions, I think on that particular hypothesis are pretty irrefutable. Right. But if we're exactly. saying, exactly. if we yeah. say that the whole of Europe, I mean, sorry, I'm giving it. I feel that way about climate change. Like I know, I you oh, know, yeah. I studied physics. You know, I I I worked with these models. I'm very confident about co- climate related claims when I hear them. But I don't have that. For example, like we were chatting about, I don't have that about nutrition in the same way. <laughs> like yeah, Jesus, sure. there are some very different <laughs> scientific claims here, and I don't know. Sure. You know, I don't know how to. But yeah, you were, sure. sorry, you were saying. No, hundred percent. So, so, um, so I think leaving the discussion about science aside for a second, we definitely know that there is a climate crisis, right? Yeah. Um, and yeah. we we also know that. Um, I mean, I I think the way that we frame it is a problem in that often we are posing that crisis as something external, right? So the climate yes. crisis is happening, and there are floods that are going to come and wipe away our cities. There are, um, you know, something outside is a danger, right? And the yeah. problem with thinking that way is that it plays into a certain human against nature logic that I would argue itself yes. is part of the problem. So in, in, yes. European, in yes. European Enlightenment thinking, yes. you have this division between human and nature. 
and in fact, the studies that the, the societies that I am beginning to work with here in Southern Africa, the societies that I worked with a little bit when I lived in Canada, they don't see us as different or distinct from nature in any meaningful way. Right? They see us as part of a community. And I, I think as a biologist or as a, as a sort of amateur biologist, that's also how I see humans. Right? We, are, we are just yeah. one organism among many. We happen to be very strange organisms, but there are lots of strange organisms. <laughs> yeah, um, there are lots of strange organisms too, right? Like, you know, sure. the, the coronavirus is a pretty strange organism. <laughs> true, true. Are we more strange than the coronavirus? I don't know. <laughs> Uh, viruses in general, are strange. I mean, water bears, no, that's a strange organism, right? So, so, so there are, there are crazy, crazy things that exist, right? And, and we happen to yeah. be one of them, but we are part of an environment. We don't exist outside of our environment. So if we call it an environmental crisis, what the hell are we talking about? The environment's going to be fine. You know, the environment is, is going to be just fine. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, right. there's no, there's, yeah. we do not have the capability, something that can survive, you know, life on this planet has survived for how many 500 million years. We do not have the capability in a few decades of of making much of a dent in that. We might make dents. We might make big impacts. We have already made big impacts. Yeah, there will be extinctions. But, you know, there have been there, lots of extinctions. It's but tragic. new species yeah. are going to come back. I mean, the new species are going to evolve yeah. in the niches that we've left for the you know by yeah. by making certain species right. extinct. Right. The question is, will we be one of the species that goes extinct? And, that's a genuine and I don't think that either. I actually think that, you know, so it's usually the people who talk about the apocalypse are talking about like civilization or whatever, because it's also, you know, I hate to be all winnable nuclear war about it, but it's also it's also very it would be very difficult to ca- cause human beings to become extinct. Right. It's a it's one of the hardiest species you know most adaptable species like it'll it that but it would you know like the the kind of apocalypse we're talking about is not something desirable at all like it would be lots of many many hundreds of millions or billions of people losing their lives many species going extinct that's not good that's not something anybody wants but it's also like you know the end always framing it in terms of the end like it's just this big black hole or something is also like a flawed way of thinking about it. Whereas if yeah. you think, okay, this is this is something really awful that's going to roll out over time. It's sort of rolling out now. <laughs> you know, it's incremental. And uh, we have to think about what we want to do about it now. Uh, and what we want instead, you don't you don't get off the hook because the thing that could happen is really bad, right? You can't yeah. stop thinking. Yeah. No, for sure. So, so, so I think so. Let's let's just agree that the crisis is the end point of the crisis is unknown, but we are in a kind of crisis. I mean, let's be real about it. Species yeah, exactly. are going extinct. Global warming is happening. Humans are living in in conditions of incredible inequality. I mean, in the paper I talk about, and I got some flack for talking about this, but I talk about other biological systems like monkeys. So, so chimps are yeah. extremely hierarchical. Um, but you'll never yeah. see a system, or you, it would be hard to design an experiment where chimps, uh, you know, with all of their alpha males and alpha females and bonobos and so on, uh, you still couldn't design a system where you have as much resource hoarding among chimpanzees as you do among humans. It's just not possible. Yeah, no. Right? No. So, no. So, so, but let's say for the sake of argument, you somehow did. Let's say for the sake of argument, you saw that the chimps were behaving in a funny way. They were giving everything to the alpha male or female, and they were going. They were going hungry, and they were dying. What would you say? What would you think if you were a scientist watching that? What would you think? You would think that 
something is stressing these these guys out. There's something wrong with their environment, mm-hmm. right? And so that right. brings us to the next. Yeah. So that brings us to, I think, the next framing, which is the capitalist framing. Um, and I, I don't know, in your civilization series, you've been doing a great job of some of this, uh, Justin. But um, so I don't know how much you want me to, to sort of explain the capitalist framing of the crisis. But I mean, in, in general terms. Yeah, do it. Yeah. I mean, in general terms, you, I don't think Marx is the, the, the beginning of this critique, but Marx is certainly a very important point in this critique which is that you have a, um, a, a, an exploitative capitalist class, um, which is exploiting a working class and doing so by the difference between the value of the labor and the value of the good that is sold, right? Um, so in capitalist terms, this would be manufacturing value added. Um, in Marxist terms, this is, oh, the Marxist term is blanking. I'm blanking on it. Um, surplus. Surplus value, surplus of course. Um, so that's, that's the main thing. And then you have the bourgeois, bourgeoisie who are sort of the upper middle class who are large enough in numbers to give the capitalist class some cushion because the capitalist class themselves are a mere handful. I mean, according to my calculation, we're talking about 0.7% of the global population, if that. Right. Um, right. So so the tradi- that's the traditional sort of view and the traditional um, action. And of course, the view is correct. I should say with both the ecological framing and with the capitalist framing of the crisis, they're both 100% correct. I cannot disagree with the, the content of the, the framing. The, where I'm disagreeing is the usefulness, right? And whether they go deep yeah. enough. So in the case of the climate crisis, you know, we can imagine that the specific technical issues around carbon emissions and so on um, were dealt with. But, you know, just as certain other specific issues have been dealt with in the past, like I mentioned chlorofluorocarbons with the Montreal Protocol, you know, leaded gasoline and so on. There have been specific environmental measures, pollution measures and so on that have been implemented and that have succeeded. Um, and, you know, we don't talk yeah. about the whole in the ozone layer anymore because it's not as much of an issue as it was. No? Um, but Yeah, so because action if, was taken. And, yeah. Because action was taken. But what I'm saying is that every crisis like that is, is preceded by another crisis. So even if we yeah. were able to deal with this, um, the internal yeah. logic of the capitalist system is such that it will continue to generate crises because because it relies not just on surplus value, it ri- relies on primitive accumulation. So it relies on yeah. taking stuff out of the ground and monetizing it, right? Um, and as long as you're yeah. relying on that, you're, you're going to create crisis. That's just the nature of the system. Yeah. So the, the socialist framing or the, the capitalist framing of the crisis has been used by two groups, I, I would argue. So... In one group, you have a sort of um, what I call neo-Keynesians. So these are people mm-hmm. like Yanis Varoufakis. These are people like, um, I don't know if you call Krugman this anymore. Krugman's kind of an outlier. Um, Jeff yeah, Sachs. Kru- forget about Krugman. Jesus. <laughs> uh, Jeff Just Sachs. completely and... discredited him. Yeah. I yeah. used to read him, you know, I used to follow. And then oh, it was 2016, but I think he was he was like this before 2016. But he just became a complete, yeah, completely partisan, which means everything he says is totally suspect now. Like, there's, yeah. yeah. I, I agree with that. I, I mean, you know, Krugman is one of those people who I remember back before he was, he was a good guy probably when you started reading him. But when I started reading him, yeah. he was a bad guy, like in 1999. Oh, he was bad and then good and then bad again. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, what yeah, was he, he was doing to- when you thought? He was a total free market fundamentalist. I mean, he was, he was, oh, totally okay. Okay. So, no, and I then mean, he, I remember him. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah I remember him kind of, yeah, like just very heterodox, like a little bit of Keynesian. Like it was just somebody who you could read and be like, okay, finally, you know, there's yeah. some kind of counterpoint to the total fundamental yeah. no i'm kind of embarrassed to admit it now but i don't think i would have understood the 2007 financial crisis as well as i did if i hadn't been reading what Krugman mm-hmm. was writing you know um but that's yeah. right that's when he was good he was good in 2008 right 2008 yeah. nine that's uh, he was when, very good yeah. he was very good but even at that yeah. point like he made this criticism of obama's stimulus and he made a very strong criticism criticism yeah. saying this is you know too little too late kind of criticism and then almost immediately he right. backed down from it and started, you know, totally just you know, people who are willing to put their own opinions or yeah. their own academic conclusions aside for the sake of politics. Yeah. Like I'm very suspect of that. Um, yeah. It's just, <laughs> it's just it's, it, it, yeah. For me, that just means like you're basically, there's no point in reading you anymore. You can just read the, you can just read the democratic party talking points. Right. I mean, there's no yeah. other, he has yeah. no other value anymore than yeah. he's just, yeah. he, yeah, he might've been of more value. I've, I've had like, I've, I know like communist party intellectuals from India who were like, I never joined the party because I'm actually more useful to the party. Outside if the party. I, yeah. If I'm able yeah. to say what I think, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But let's let's so let's let's deal with the let's let's address the Keynesians for a second. So forget Friedman. I agree he's he's a waste of time. But yeah. but you know, people like Giannis Protofakis or, or Jeff Sachs, I mean I still read some of them. Um, Joe Stiglitz for a Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and I think that they you know, again, they're right. Um, so they want to reform the system to, I mean, even even Fartofakis, who sometimes calls himself a Marxist, um, he says yeah, I, I want to save him- I, He says I want to save capitalism from itself. All right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, you know, I, I think, you know, and I, I think they have a point. The point is that left to its own logic, what we've seen in 2007, and frankly, what we've seen going back to 1971. So let me give your listeners a little bit of history because uh, you haven't gotten to this part in your civilization series. No, I don't, <laughs> I don't think we are. I think we're going to stop. I think we'll okay. stop around World War II. Okay. So after World War II, we have the Bretton Woods Conference of 1948, uh, 1945? Uh, no, 45, yeah. no, 44. Because um, 50 years is enough was 1994. Um, so uh, we have that conference taking place. The World War II is coming to an end. Um, and we have a lot of people in that room, one of whom was um, Keynes. Um, so Keynes, who's an, by that point an old economist, but who's really um, a very brilliant, someone who brilliantly understands financial capital because he was a speculator yeah. himself. And someone who also understands that left to its own devices, financial capital will destroy itself because they're yeah. always building these pyramid schemes. They're always trying to build a profit out of nothing. And there's also a herd mentality. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. he, this is what he, he, he described as the, I mean, it's a kind of a herd, herd mentality that was happening in the 1920s. When you had the roaring 20s, everyone investing in markets, including housing markets, different kinds of, of um, you know, commodity markets. And then when the crash happens, um, suddenly people start doing, start testing their hypotheses and seeing if, you know, it's really possible to make this much money from thin air. And then the whole house of cards come crashing down, comes crashing down, right? Yeah. And so Keynes saw this and he built a system very cleverly. Um, he was unfortunately undermined by the U.S. representative at that meeting, but we don't have to get into the politics. But he built a system that, that maintained financial stability in the global north, so in Europe and the United States, 
he was definitely a pro-colonial dude. I mean, he had, didn't have much to say about Africa or Asia or anywhere else. Um, but he built a system that was stable from 1950 to 1970, extremely stable uh, uh, in the United States, in Canada, in Western Europe, and allowed for a certain kind of middle class to arise in those places, right? So yeah. my parents' generation who you know, started their working life in the 60s and 70s, they were very much the beneficiaries of that. Um, because there were these big corporations that hired lots of people, there were these big institutions and so on. There was cradle to the grave sort of um, corporate culture and so on. So that was part of the Keynesian sort of sort of deal. Now, in the 1970s, that comes apart, and you have eventually the rise of Margaret Thatcher in the UK and Ronald Reagan in the US, who managed to spread their influence uh, all over the world. And their influence can be summed up, in my view, in three words, privatization, liberalization, and austerity, budget cuts, right? So these are the yeah. fights. These are the fights that we're still fighting today. And what the neo-Keynesians want to say is they want to say, look, we know this doesn't work. <laughs> we know letting the, you know, especially in terms of the financial liberalization, the trade liberalization, we know that if we let capitalists run amok, they will destroy the, they will, they will kick away their own ladder. They will, they will be left sitting on their, on their butts, because they will have destroyed the very systems that they, that they made their money on. That's just how this works. And we've seen it happen in the 1920s. We saw it happen in 1997 in Thailand. We saw it happen with the savings and loan crisis in the 1980s. I mean, history just keeps repeating itself. Have you read uh, Carl, Carl Polanyi? No, I don't think so. Oh, it's so good, man. You'll love it. It's, uh, it. He, he wrote a book called The Great Transformation. And uh, it it's all about, you know, the famous line from that book is he says, laissez-faire was planned and planning was not. So he basically talks about how um, all of the, the lace, all the work and state um, intervention that went into imposing markets and then all of the planning measures that were then adopted as emergencies because markets were basically destroying everything. Um, so, and it's yeah. about, it's primarily about the 19th century. So I think you'll, I think you'll really, you'll really dig it. I would, I would love to stick my teeth into that. Please, please send me the reference. Um, <laughs> yeah. but so, so, so the, listen again, the, the neo-Keynesians are hundred percent right. The problem is it's, it's really hard. <laughs> this is a really hard political slogan, you know, save capitalism from itself. Who the hell wants to save capitalism from itself? The capitalists are doing yeah. just fine. And those of us who don't like capitalism yeah. are, don't really want to save it from, our, from itself. Um, right. And also, I think that, you know, I, I think there's a misunderstanding about how decisions are made. Um, so, yes. you know, so there's, if you listen to these guys, especially, I think now they're becoming a little bit more jaded and cynical, like, like I've always been. <laughs> but I think, you know, but if you listen to them <laughs> yeah. like five or, five or ten years ago, what they were basically saying is we need better regulation. Um, and I yeah, always had a problem with that line because, you know, if you're talking about the billionaire class, how many regulators do you think a billion dollars can buy? Yeah. I mean, I mean, so there's this assumption, and, and I find this especially when I'm talking about my experiences in places like India and South Africa and contrasting them with places like the UK, for example. The people in the UK will say, well, yeah, we're not corrupt like, you know, India or South Africa or whatever. And I'm like, really? <laughs> you guys, you yeah, guys you are just as corrupt. legalized it. Yeah. 100%. 100%. So, so a lot of what we see, the UK may be slightly less corrupt than, say, the US. And I, I, haven't, I haven't kept my eye on Canada. You have to update me on where you guys are on that scale. But you know, the, <laughs> the, level, the level of legalized corruption in the US is like off the charts. 
right? Yeah, um, it just, and, I'm sure it. I'm sure it. Cor- I'm sure a quantitatively minded person would just correlate it with inequality. So probably more unequal societies are more corrupt in that sense of the yeah. purchase of officials, whatever. For sure, yeah. for sure. And then I think there's a, another. Um, you know, I, I think there's another problem, which is that they. So one is that the regulation won't work, but the other problem with their their view is that they only see re- regulation as an answer, right? So. Yeah. Um, it's hard to see how that's going to be effective. Um, yeah. So you know, there's got to be it's got to be more than regulation that we're talking about. Um, and you have a line here that I really like: the structures of capitalism that the economist claims are rooted in human nature are in fact rooted in systems of elite control. Yeah, hundred percent. Uh, so that is this is huge, going back to yeah, yeah. that's a confusion. Yeah. Well, that that line is going back to um, people who you you have discussed, and I imagine we'll discuss again. So, so people like Bentham, um, the, the founders of utilitarianism, right? So, the, modern yeah. economics, all schools of economics, including socialist economics, unfortunately, are really rooted in these utilitarian ideas about what can, constitutes human happiness and how that can be quantified yeah. through all kinds of exotic equations about how people make decisions. <laughs> yeah. And and we know yeah. that people don't make. I mean, it's it takes any like first year psychology student can tell you that that's not how people make decisions, but that's still what economists use, including socialist economists, um, to to do their calculations. Um, so yeah, so so it's not, you know, socialist economists aside, it's not about human nature. When an economist tells you that that's what the market says, they're not making any pronouncement on the market. They're not making any pronouncement on human na- uh, on human nature. They're making a pronouncement on what will serve elites, and that's a conclusion we can come to because, in part, because uh, of, of big failures of markets like two thousand seven, two thousand eight, right? Yeah. So systems of elite control. Let's skip some of your paper and get right to the juicy colonial frame, um, okay. because I think that's where <laughs> you don't want to uh, do my critique of the know, Soviet Union. That's where I think. Uh, yeah, I'm gonna skip that. <laughs> cool. <laughs> How did you know? <laughs> uh, so um, yeah, let's let's talk about this colonial framing because you know what I what I detected when I read this is also like, um, you know, the the ecological framing has this kind of science discipline bias, and the the capitalist one has a kind of an e- economist bias. And then the colonial one, I think is like very historical, like the discipline you, you want to, you want to use is history um, where you look at these stories and look at what yeah. actually happened. Yeah. I, I mean, let me be honest, Justin, which is that I, I'm not a, I didn't start this thinking about the history. I, I didn't start. I started this work thinking yeah. why the hell is my campaigning ineffective? And in order to understand why my why my campaigning was ineffective, I had to begin to understand why um, why institutions why certain institutions were structured the way they were. Uh, and I, I focus on three or two institutions really. I mentioned three institutions, but there are two institutions that I really am qualified to talk about. So there's the the corporation, yeah. um, and there's governments. So and governments around the world, right? Um, and there's only a couple of models right. I would argue of of so called I mean, they say they're dem- democracies, but you know, who are we kidding, guys? Um, so, so um, you know, when you start do, doing the analysis of why we're stuck in these structures, you know, you also you have to ask like, how do we? How do we? How do I, as a human being, how do I spend my twenty-four hours in the day? Okay, eight hours of sleeping, 
you know, sometimes I'm, you know, doing yoga or playing tennis or whatever, or doing stuff on my free time. But for a, a third of that time, I'm at work, right? And I'm at work in an NGO that has a certain model, which is blatantly stolen from a corporate model. I don't know why. Um, and that model has its history in an institution that played a big role in your most recent uh, Civilizations episode, the British East India Company, yeah. and to some extent the Dutch East yeah. India Companies, which I think these were the first two sort of multinational corporations. Yep. And they had... Uh, yeah, the, around the Royal... Let's not forget Let's not forget the Royal Africa Company, which was founded to trade and slave. No, fantastic. They're all so around yeah. the same time. Yeah, yeah so, so these, are, these, are, these are the precursors... To, I mean, even precursors to companies like Apple and Google, but definitely precursors to companies <laughs> like, you know, like Ford and Volkswagen and like, I mean, very deliberately. Some of these companies were set up um, specifically to process materials that were coming from the colonies, right? Um, so, I, I mean, even even countries, I don't know if you've had the chance to visit Belgium, but Belgium, if you ever you visit Belgium, all you will see is ivory and chocolate. Belgium doesn't produce <laughs> coffee beans and, and Belgium doesn't produce any ivory, right? Um, right? So it's like the amount of ivory in that country I have never seen in all of my travels in the African continent. I have never mm. seen anywhere near that amount of ivory, right? Wow. Um, so, so the colonial uh, systems are what, are what allowed these companies to happen. Um, and these companies are why we are today. So that was my entry point. Um, right. So... I don't know where you want to start from um, after that, Justin. Well, uh, what about the the persistence of the institution? So, you know, didn't colonialism, if you have a colonial frame, aren't you just, aren't, shouldn't we just celebrate? Because colonialism ended in the 1960s, right? Yeah. Yeah, this is, so there's a bunch of questions that you're asking there. And, and I think, yeah. I think the one question, first, first, let's say, no, colonialism didn't end in the 1960s because <laughs> because go. there's because there is you know even in the very narrow sense in which you intended which in which a um, a detractor might have intended I don't say you intended but a critic a critic might have intended because we have Palestine we have you know yeah. um, the Falklands I mean Canada. pick your <laughs> pick yeah. your pick your colony of choice it still exists so so yeah. there's not there are still people who live and die in colonized territories so that's that's point number one. Point number two is, let's take a very specific example, right? So um, you have recently discussed the transition from Mughal India to British India, right? So let's take yeah. that. Mughal, Mughal India, what did it look like? Did it look like structurally? Um, did it look like British India? I would argue no. I would argue British India no. took some... I would, so let's Hell take no. One, <laughs> let's take one... I mean, this is, this is debatable, right? So there are people who will disagree with me, but let's take yeah. one specific institution. So in North India, we talk about um, zamindar. Zamindar is a word that yeah. means, it's traditionally used to mean landlord, right? Zamindar is a, is, is a person who nowadays, you know, owns massive tracts of land and rents them out to, it's almost a feudal system, right? And if you go to parts yeah. of Pakistan, parts of Bihar, parts of Uttar Pradesh, um, parts of West Bengal, you will see the system still in place. I have seen the system still in place. But, and this system has its origins at the Mughal time, not in the British time. But yeah. what was the job of the zamindar in the Mughal time? The job of the zamindar was basically to go to all the people, the small farmers, and collect a little bit of money, taxes, right? He, yeah. he was, a, ta he was yeah. a tax collector. Now, tax collectors aren't particularly popular people. They're usually not particularly nice yeah. people. But then they don't own the land, 
right? You you can't. Yeah, it's exactly. not like they. It's not. The, but the British had no way to to deal with that. The British had no way yeah. to to understand and to to trust the loyalty of someone who was just a tax who was just an official. How that official could be bribed and so on. So we say, you're not an official now. You're the owner. You own the whole bloody thing. And making sure that it's in good standing and that your workers are working well, that's your responsibility now. So right. what they have done, they have created a landholding class where there really wasn't one. It was a small farmer right. society. Um, so that's that's and one. And you multiply sm- that. You multiply yeah. that over the entire globe. Um, For sure. Because even areas where they didn't, where they didn't militarily control the land, they their mod like you were saying, they they exported their models of everything from economy to education. For sure, for uh, sure, and this was called yeah. progress. And I think one of the things that came up in your again, I'm, I'm quoting your own earlier episodes. Hopefully, um, listeners will go and check that out. But one of the things that came up in your discussion on India was that, um, you know, they the um, Sorry, I lost my train of thought. So we were talking about the um, the landholder class. We were talking about how these things got uh, exported everywhere. Yeah, and then just the idea of exporting. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Sorry, I, I'm I'm gonna. That's annoying me that I lost that train of thought. Um, but so that's that's land. Land is very important, and and sort of how people are related to the land is extremely important. But there's also the question of companies. There's also the question of progress. Ah, this is where I was going to. So, um, so. What came up in one of your discussions was that Bengal was de-industrialized by the British East India Company. Yes. So just yes. think through the implications of that, because what we are told, I believe what people are still told in school, certainly what I was told and what uh, has been written in South African newspapers fairly recently, um, is that the British came and they developed South Africa. They yes. developed India. They brought their mm-hmm. trains. They brought their steam engines and so on. Bengal was already producing steam engines. When the British East India Company exactly. took over, right? Exactly. A lot of the technological no achievements. Stop. That's right. That's right. A lot of the There's, technological uh, uh, achievements if, already already existed, and and the British deliberately deindustrialized, de-developed certain places in order right. to fulfill a colonial model that relied on the colonies providing raw materials. Right. Yeah. What I was going to say was like two, you know, for two thousand, for however many thousands of years until the last. 200 or 300 years anything that any technology that arose anywhere in europe or asia would eventually get to every part of the that whole system 100%. so it's not it's not as if that you know that those technologies wouldn't have arrived at some point so that's the not technologies arrived and the, and the, the i mean a lot of the technologies actually originated um you know yeah i don't exactly. I, we don't have to be that we don't have to get to this level of technicality per se but you know if we're talking about uh, jared diamond's famous uh, ger, uh, guns germs and steel right mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. if we look at the guns and the steel part of that forget about the germs for a second um the guns were invented by who the guns were invented by gunpowder was invented by the chinese who were using it yes. in fireworks in the ninth century they used it in a kind of cannonball in the 11th or 12th century. Um, an yeah. actual something that looked like a rival, rifle was first invented either by the Arabs or the Persians. Europe is right. not part of this story until much later, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, so that's that's one piece of it. Um, the the steel piece of it. Where does that tempering steel that he talks about in some detail in that book? <laughs> that's again, that's again an Arab, a North African or an Arab uh, uh, innovation. Yeah. So, you know, uh, this idea that, that Europe sort of 
quote unquote civilized or gave people technology and industry and so on. I mean, it's a, it's, it's not just prejudiced; it's extremely inaccurate, right? Yeah, and we know who <laughs> we know who benefits from that. But then there's like a, a the 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 real the real depth of um of what you know. I we mean, know there's lots that's, that, in, that's deep in the article. But what I, what I really like uh, another part that I really like of many, but the competition, like the the idea of commodification. Yeah, talk about commodification and competition as the colonial like i don't know one two punch i guess yeah no for sure so i think in order to understand this we really have to you know um i think writing history justin like really seriously writing history involves um involves you know a bit of imagination you really have to sort of read all the texts you can get and then sort of close your eyes and think what was life like in and, and, and I should say what I'm doing, I'm at, the, I'm at the anthropology department. And part of what I'm doing is like, you know, because Europe is always the, the, the subject, you know, and Africa is the object. So I'm sort of turning that yeah. on its head. And I'm, I'm, I'm here sitting yeah. in Africa and I'm Europe, especially 15th century Europe is my, is my nice. object, right? So I'm nice. closing my eyes and I'm thinking, what the hell was life like in 15th, 16th century Europe? Yeah. And the answer is, Life was, you know, nasty, brutal, and short, right? If you were not part of the, if you were, <laughs> right. not, if you were not lucky enough to, and this was almost across the board, but there was a there was a class of landholders who would have definitely had a better life. I don't mean to do, I don't mean to discredit the class um, relations there, but if we look at the list of French kings after Charlemagne, for example, it's a kind of a laundry list. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just it's just king after king after king. It's war after war after war. It's it's an unending state of of, you know, I want to use the word barbarity, although I, I know that that's got yeah. racial overtones as well. But, you know, it's just it's just people people killing each other um, for no apparent right. reason. And then when you look at like when you look at like 1491 by Charles Mann or, you know, yeah. who's collecting all these accounts of like when the Spanish show up in in Mexico and yeah. they're amazed by how well the the average person is living way better than the peasant oh, yeah. in Europe is. For sure. And for sure. You know, Africa too and Asia too. And I mean, yeah, prosperous, like the idea of like a, you know, a peasant that's eating well, you know, and has, you know, a family life. Like, yeah, yeah, that's. So in that context, in that context, Justin, why is the king who knows he may not be the king tomorrow? Why is he sending people abroad first to Africa and then to the Americas? It's a kind of a gamble. It's a kind of like crap, crap. My position is not good. Um, I may lose my throne any second, any day. Um, and so in order, to, um, in order to hedge my bets, in order to have some kind of advantage, I need to find a quicker way to Asia to, uh, to deal with, to get spices. I need to find some mystery lost city of gold that I heard about in, in you know, some myth somewhere, right? Well, so here's another, were- here's another, yeah, another dynamic that I think, because I, I spent a lot of time studying uh, medieval Spain, right? So... I don't think it's a coincidence that it was the Spanish in the sense that they'd been fighting 300 years and expanding into Arab Spain, um, you know, completed sure. that peninsular conquest and just thought like, you know, they're in that, they're all in that mode of like, let's go get more. For sure. Uh, you know? No, for and, sure. I think uh, that that's, I think that that's definitely a piece of it. Um, yeah. yeah. I think, I think for sure there are, there are, there are many pieces of the puzzle. I think, Islamophobia is like a, and the sort of um, conflict between Europe and the Muslim mm-hmm. world 
is 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 just inter- it, you know it explains a lot if you take that as a starting point it also explains the religious fervor fervor yeah. in the americas um quite yeah. well so I, yeah. I i i appreciate that i think that's a great contribution to this uh discussion um but that said so so what do you have to do if you want to, if you're not in the one percent if you want to um survive how are you going to survive in that in that conditions well the answer is you have to sort of make yourself useful to the one percent you have to attach yourself to some faction now why are there factions right. because the kings know that the way to encourage people to get more and better gifts because the kings are also desperate remember the way that you get more and yeah. better gifts is yeah. you divide up your own your own um, gentry your own you know royalists your own loyal loyalists you divide them into factions and have them all compete with each other for your favor right and right. so in the in the in the in the reconquista that you're talking about that was like who can who wins the best, biggest victories there were there were generals who were sort of you know competing with one another mm-hmm. for who can actually do this so it wasn't it wasn't so much competition between generals sometimes it was actually com, com, i mean it wasn't so much cooperation in military strategy right. it was like competition between individual generals for who could get the most glory right so so right. even that you know goes to the new world with people who um who are trying to bring back the most golden slaves, starting with our, our friend Christopher Columbus himself, right? Um, and it starts, it starts immediately, and then that same philosophy of dividing up the vassals is used in the colonies. So um, mm-hmm. in Haiti, which I really appreciated your episode on Haiti as well, um, in Haiti you have these divisions between um, you know, the, slave, the enslaved population who are coming from Africa and the native population, yeah. which, um, yeah. which amazingly, you know, when... when um, when the enslaved population sort of takes over and, and become free in a, in a gesture of, of renouncing that they, yeah. they named the Island yeah. Haiti as an, as a gesture of solidarity. That was the indigenous people's name yeah. for it, even though there were hardly any of them left. Right. So, yeah. um, so I think in that act, for example, you have exactly um, encapsulated what I'm trying to say, which is that in order to, in order to undo the competition, we need to focus more on, co- on cooperation because the way that European colonialism worked was it, it, it divide and rule in Britain was like an advanced phase of this um, in, yeah. in, in the British empire, rather um, the earlier phases were, were a little bit cruder, but ended up doing the same thing, which is just how do you get people to compete with one another? Um, the French and Indian wars, you know, you can see that there were certain yeah. tribes that aligned with, um, with the British, there's certain tribes that aligned with the French and so on. So it was always this attempt to, you know, um, to exploit. And I'm not saying that there weren't already existing divisions. So here in Southern Africa, yeah. there were existing divisions between, you know, say the Zulus and the Kosas, for example. Um, but yeah, to but come it's in just different. Like it's, yeah. Was, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. It, I, I like this. So, but once you, once you do this, right, once you take this on and you, you say like, I'm going to, I'm going to look as, the, as a colonial, we've been calling it colonial determinism, right? Uh, then mm-hmm. you really see it everywhere. So, uh, so like we were watching, uh, we were watching Enola Holmes on Netflix. It's this kind of uh, movie about, Sherlock Holmes supposedly has a younger sister and she solves mysteries too. She's trying to find their mother or whatever. And then she goes to this really repressive boarding school. You know, her brother punishes her by sending her to this boarding school. And, the, and you know, he says, I'm going to educate this wildness out of you. And I was just thinking like, it's, it's, it's 1901 in the, in the, that's where it's set. 
And I was just like, this is the educational model that we're still dealing with right now. Like there's like modifications to a model where the idea yeah. is the child is wild <laughs> and uh, and must be educated. Yeah. The wildness must be educated out of them, like punished out of them, yeah. right? Yeah. And, uh, yeah. So here it would be good to give a footnote <laughs> and to say that, to say that, you know, when I started researching, I, I sort of came up with this independently, but when I started researching, I very quickly came upon the work of Emmanuel uh, Wallerstein. I don't know if you're familiar with him. Yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. yeah. But you would, so, you'd, re- you'd also really like J. M. Blout. Um, J. M. Blout is pretty Blout. explicitly he uh, he he's critical of Jared Diamond, but it's a he's got a book called like Eight Eurocentric Historians or something, <laughs> and. Uh, <laughs> And that's his model. His whole thing is like uh, Europe basically took over the world because it got an advantage by disease, uh, you know, the disease that helped them to wipe out, you know, the Aztec and Inca civilizations and steal all of their like dismantling an entire civilization and stealing all of its wealth, which was not something that had probably been done in that to that extent before sure. and that advantage just enabled them to build, you know, nobody would ever be able to catch up to that. So for sure that fascinating was what, yeah. Fascinating. I think there's a lot to, there's a lot to study. There's a lot to learn, but so just to return to Wallerstein for a second. So, you know, Wallerstein and, and uh, people like Brodel before him take this world yeah. systems approach, right? And so in, yep. in that approach, we are still, I mean, Wallerstein argued before his, his uh, recent demise, um, he, he was arguing that we're at the tail end of a world system that had its beginnings at exactly the time we're discussing, the 15th and maybe 16th century. So yeah. we're in 500 plus years of a certain world system. And if you take, if you sort of yeah. take that seriously, then exactly what you're saying about the connections with the educational systems, what I'm saying with the, the corporate yeah. model and so on it begins to make a lot of sense and you begin to see yeah. um, that not only, co- so I would go to a step further and say, you know, not only has colonialism not ended, <laughs> but actually the first yeah. people who were sort of the victims of colonialism <laughs> were, the, were the Europeans. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this, this is, um, this yeah. is now where my, my African comrades will sort of raise their eyebrows at me. Um, but, <laughs> but, you know, if you look at what made some of that impossible, if we look at what some have made that possible, you know, it was a certain way of it. It was the enclosures, right? It was, it was um, yeah. destroying yeah. the concept Absolutely. of the commons in England, for example, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And and that model was taken. It was, certainly was taken up here in in Southern Africa, um, and I think it's that model which has really destroyed us more. It's not so much that the Europeans came, you know, anyone can. Yeah. People yeah. have been no. coming to this part of the the continent for. Yeah, as like long we as talked been, about Zhang He. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it's the it's the enclosures, it's this certain certain model of land is for producing money. <laughs> right? Yeah, um, yeah. It's yeah, exactly. Exactly. And and, and so commodi- this commodification of everything. The commodification of everything and the necessary competition that comes along with that. If you want a piece of the pie, you've got to compete for it. Um, that's really what's what's um, the original sin of that. 500 year old world system that we're still a part of. And so the question becomes, how do we undo that? And so at the end of this paper, I talk about how we can move towards rebuilding the commons, um, stewarding the commons and cooperating around that stewardship. 
And in my mind, this is, this is where I'm a little bit sketchy. Like, I don't know how that looks practically. <laughs> that's, part, that's part two of the paper. It's, it's, we'll have to wait well, for the dissertation. Well, I can't describe, you know, the world, the, the next world system. So the next 500 years, if you can describe that, hey, man, hats off to you. I certainly can't. Um, <laughs> but but I, can, I can begin to describe the principles around which it should be built, which are cooperation and stewardship of the commons. Does right, that make sense? Right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And then if it doesn't, then those are criteria. And if your your proposal doesn't fit those, then you have to discard it. And that's it. That's, mean, that's what, To be honest, that's really yeah. why I, I like this. Because it was a way to, these were easy criteria through which to filter any concrete proposal, right? Um, so yeah. there yeah. are... Um, you know, in the states, I'm, again, so that means I'm no market. That means the, that means you have a carbon market. You can discard it. It's based on competition. It's gone. You have. It, it could be. Right? You have, yeah. Uh, yeah. It could be, but but what I was really concerned about. Um, so in the states, we have this phenomenon of like identity politics, and to some extent, it's absolutely yeah. necessary and justified, and and it's you know it needs to exist. Native lives matter. Black lives matter. You know, women's lives matters. These yeah. things have to be said. They have to be said as a form of compensation, right? Because race, yeah. you, you know, yeah. you and I both know race doesn't really exist. Gender is a social con yeah. construct as well. So we have to, we have to, you know, if, if people have been marginalized and oppressed for centuries, we have to uplift those voices as a moment of rebalancing, yeah. as a moment of, of recognition. Exactly. And then we have to yeah. be able to move beyond that to a space where everyone is cooperating, right? Yeah. And so some of the proposals that I was beginning to hear in the sort of, places that I might describe as sort of radical feminist or radical black nationalist were interesting theoretically, but if they were ever carried out in practice, they would have been disastrous. Right. Um, so <laughs> right. it was like, okay, we know the capitalist, we know the capitalists are our enemy. We know the markets are our enemy, but let's not, let's, let's not be our own enemy here. Let's, let's talk about solutions that are actually humanist and universal in their final form. There may be, there may be elements, as I say, of, for example, the discussion around policing and the discussion around racist policing and so on. So there may be elements where some institutions just have to be abolished in order for us to get to new constructs, yeah. which will allow us to have better forms of accountability. But let's not lose the forest for the trees here, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, it's not, I think when I think about it, it's like, under, this is also a case where understanding colonialism gets you far. You understand how these uh, these identities were constructed and why, and how they were constructed specifically to oppress and uh, you know destroy the you know the morale and then the physical um, existence in a lot of cases of groups of people or or people and and being able to being able to identify with something more substantial than just your oppression. So like, for example, I've never, you know, I only ever feel like a Brown person when I'm in a racist context, right? I, when I'm not in a racist context, I would think about it in a much more fluid way about like culture and preference and ideas and ideologies and, yeah, you know, uh, which, all of which martial arts you like to study. Yeah. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So yeah. it's not, um, yeah, but but it's it's actually oppression. I I think I think I think yeah. One of the feminist writers, 
Feder- Silvio Federici, I think. Yeah, talks Felici, about that. Like, like you, you have to, you have to make someone into a woman, right? You're making a person into a woman in order to oppress that person. Hundred um, percent. And and what I like about Federici is that she also makes the links between um, sexism and colonialism. Um, yeah. Yeah. In in yeah. really in really fascinating ways um, about how how dehuman you know it, it brings us to a concept of dehumanization. Um, yeah. So, which I think brings us to, to the work that I do on, on caste and, and uh, religion in India mm-hmm. and, and Trump and so on. So the question becoming, you know, when you look at a, any child, any small, uh, you know, let's say under the age of two yeah. or three, um, that child looks at the world with wonder and looks at almost any human being with wonder as well. Although there are some studies which show that, you know, they're, they're more likely to be friendly to people who are the same skin color as, as they are. But leaving that aside, that yeah. that child has not learned to oppress, right? So if we say that this is a child yeah. who's going to work for the British East India Company eventually in the in the nineteenth <laughs> century, right? Yeah. That child has to learn certain things, and that child is yeah. not going to be shipped to India straight away. There, he has to learn things in his own context. He has to learn to oppress, you know, Irish people and whatever black people he may come into contact with, and women. Like he has to learn that. There has to be a behavior that he's he's familiar with. Otherwise, how the hell is he going to handle being the, the master in, in India, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So in, in that context, um, engaging with these, how these um, different forms of oppression overlap, racism, sexism, colonialism, you know, whatever, Islamophobia, you know, heteronormativity, whatever you want to say, is really fascinating to me. Yeah, but the, the reason I like the historical approach, though, is that, I think when you take that kind of like philosophical approach of like continually adding identities and, and binaries, you, you end up, you know, you end up kind of, what can I say? Like it, you lose, you could lose sight of the historical specificity of it and also any potential way of um, undermining it because you'll end up seeking redress within the same kind of philosophical framework of liberal, like legalistic or corporate programming that led to these problems in the first place. I think that's... Yeah, for sure. And I I think the response to that, yeah, I mean, I I obviously agree, but I think there's a devil's advocate kind of argument to say, which is that, well, how else are we supposed to seek something like reparations, right? Given that this is the context in which yeah. we're working, what else is what well, else is yeah. going to look like other than, than legalistic, right? Uh, you, you, in a couple of episodes, we're going to talk about uh, civilizations. We're going to talk about the uh, U.S. Civil War. And uh, I've been reading a lot about John Brown. Um, but, mm. uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, I mean, we co- we did cover the Haitian Revolution. Uh, you know, it's 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 too bad, but... I my study of history, my going back over history so far has not um, has not suggested to me that there are easy or um, peaceful <laughs> ways yeah, of, yeah, uh, yeah. of uprooting so, colonialism. Sadly, so so let me just um, let me just I mean let at the towards the end of our conversation, let's just speculate a little bit. Yeah about how yeah. that might be done. I mean, the problem is that a lot of this has to happen within the context of, of the nation state, which itself is not a, not an ideal construct. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, you know, but here in South Africa at the moment, for example, we have very little yeah. to lose, man. I mean, we, our economy is tanked. Yeah. 
Our unemployment rate is through the roof. I mean, the, the capitalist system is not serving us. It wasn't serving us before COVID. Now it's just, I mean, it's yeah. dead on its feet, right? Though you wouldn't yeah. know it by looking at the financial markets, but that, that's a different story. Um, yeah. So given that, you know, if you were if you were a government, a true, you know, and we have a leftist government in power, or, or a center-left government in power that claims to be at least center-left, and that claims to be anti-colonial. And if you read their manifesto, I mean, you or I could have, you know, been on the drafting committee. It's a very, very radical manifesto to come out of the, the government. But their practices are all neoliberal, right? So yeah. we could, and, and one, of the, one of the questions that's being debated is, is the question of land and, and what to do with the land and so on. I mean, how hard would it be to take the just government land, so go, land that is not currently being used for anything, that's already in the government custody, which is a, a big percentage of the land, um, in South Africa, I think it's, I don't have the number offhand, but it's 10 or 15%. How hard would it be to turn all of those into cooperative farms, for example? Right? It would be the yeah, easiest I mean, thing I, in the I world for the government just, to do. I mean, with South um, Africa, would, with, you know, with countries like Venezuela. Policies Venice. around food security and so on, it would give lots of people yeah. livelihood. It would encourage different kinds of markets, and maybe even barter and so on, because you'd have, you know, some farms would have more of this yeah. and some farms would have more of that. Like, Are you still there? No, I'm here. Sorry, I thought I lost you. Um, okay. Oh no. No, because but, but but you know, if it's a country like Cuba or Venezuela, you're gonna get sanctioned and you know attempts to overthrow you. South Africa is a pretty big, powerful country. I I do think the main fight is with the you know those elites in South Africa that that are against that right it's like fear to con- in Canada too like it's it's a fear to confront the super powerful elite of which the government to which many of the government belong so for sure you know um yeah. and, but it's also i mean if i can say it's also a lack of imagination um you think I've, so, eh? I, I've been I've been wondering about that because I actually increasingly think that the policies that work for people coming up with those is not actually intellectually very difficult. What's difficult well, is is challenging the powerful um, and to potentially defeating the powerful in order to make sure those things happen. Yeah, so I I think it's a different thing. So so we have people like like again my professor Dr. Rasikhan Maharaj. Who is extremely creative? You know, who could come up? Yeah. Who has who has floated all kinds of policy ideas with the government over yeah. the past twenty years? Um, yeah. But he's not he's not taken seriously. Um, <laughs> no, of course so, not. Because so, he's trying to <laughs> right. So it's yeah. it, but he's. I mean, what I mean by he's not taken seriously is I mean that people are if if the policy recommendation has anything to do with economics, he's just marginalized. Yeah. Right, and he's told yeah. that only, only the this is a domain only for the economists. If he wants to talk about education policy, okay, he may be able to, to get a foot in. He may be able to get a little bit done. So there's certain domains, and this this is um, another piece that I, I wrote many yeah. years ago when I was with the Fifty Years Is Enough Network about the the tyranny of the finance minister. So it right. really doesn't matter what everyone else in the government thinks. Like you can have the most creative, even the person in charge of land may have really creative ideas, but if the finance minister vetoes it, it's vetoed. And the finance minister, especially in Africa at the moment, all of our finance ministers come from the World Bank and the IMF. They have been trained there, <laughs> and they are more neoliberal. Yeah, than but you know what? I I think that might be more apparent than real because wasn't Varoufakis the finance minister for for Greece, and then no. he was proposing things and and was forced out, right? 
So Fartofakis is a is a very different kind of a story. So I, I don't think so so let's leave him aside because he's like he's like the exception that proves the rule. But and let's see, <laughs> No, well, all I mean is all I mean is like if you had a good finance minister with good policies, they would also be quickly not finance minister anymore. Ah, I see what you mean. No, it's but we had better finance ministers and not that long ago, right? So you take a country like Mozambique, man. Mozambique has bloody, you know, they fought bloody revolutionary wars. They were supported but supported by the Soviet Union. Why should their finance finance minister I had the bizarre experience the last time I was in Mozambique of speaking with uh, speaking with I didn't speak with the finance minister, I spoke with one of his deputies, who was extremely neoliberal. And this is in a in a <laughs> on the constitution of this country it says we are a communist country. Right. Um, so, <clears throat> so I'm speaking with him. It's extremely neoliberal. Then I had the bizarre experience of going to speak with the IMF representative, who was far more neo-Keynesian. <laughs> right. <laughs> who was proposing oh, like terrible. who was proposing certain kinds of regulations? Who was proposing universal basic income guarantees and so on? Like uh, it was bizarre. Um, so, and so, unable to convince the finance minister. So the IMF is saying, "Hey, why don't we introduce these regulations?" And the finance, the communist well, finance minister, is yeah. saying, "No." I mean, the IMF is also a kind of a two-faced institution. Right? If they if they have any yeah. good thing to say, if they if they have any good proposals, they sort of put those as like, "Yeah, you might want to consider doing this." But when it's time <laughs> to do the bad things, when it's time to do the budget cut, they they put that as a condition on giving the loan, right? Or they put it as a condition yeah. on giving the good pre- credit rating. More important than the loan when we talk about the IMF is the credit rating the portion. Credit rating. So if they don't give a good credit rating, you won't be able to raise any money, you're, you're stuck. Yeah. Finance capital. Yeah, so so it's 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 really, um, I mean, this thinking, the, 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 front, the, the plus side is that this is all sort of coming to an end, I think. Um, these people, their logic has sort of run its course. 2007, 2008 has been, um, you know, it's been 10 years since then, 15 years since then almost. But we, no one really thinks that unfettered capitalism can possibly succeed. I don't think there's anyone that naive, right? Um, so there's a certain discrediting of it, but you're, yeah, there's, there's also a vacuum where in the absence of you know, something that really makes sense. I find even sympathetic people like your Mozambique finance minister's deputy will just default to things that intellect, even they know don't intellectually work, right? So they'll just be like, well, this is what economics tells us. You know, we have to cut the budget. Yeah. Well, I mean, the sad, sad thing is that in, in uh, some of the cases, I, I, I don't know that they care that it doesn't work. I think they're just right, doing right. what they think yeah. they're supposed to do. Um yeah. And so, yeah. and, and they think that the job of the finance minister is to balance the budgets because that's how they were educated. And all yeah. they really care about, I mean, listen, this is now I'm being super cynical, but I mean, right now in South Africa, I was just listening on the radio, we have 130 some investigations into corruption just relating to COVID. Um, so uh-huh. just related to the money that was released for the various COVID related stuff. So, you know, the the, the extent to which people feel like you know, I've done my time in the bush. I've done my time with the ANC. I've been a revolutionary. Now I want to be rich. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I'm, I'm afraid that that's a very real thing. In, in um, and, and, you know, you mentioned Museveni earlier. I mean, it's not just in South Africa. I think in many places around the continent, this is what we're seeing. If you're talking about trying to do a, a good policy that'll work well, like, you're, like the idea of uh, communal farms or land reform, you're talking about having to confront 
the beneficiaries of the status quo. And it it's just so rare. It's so rare. And part of part of politics now, I think, is like the desperate for the past, I don't know, four decades has been like the desperate search for some trick uh, to be able to accomplish something good, you know, better equality or climate policy or whatever, without ever having to confront anybody or even make anybody feel uncomfortable. Yeah, and that stuff isn't going to work. I mean, let's just be let's just be perfectly clear. You're not going to be able to, you know, what I'm proposing is a kind of a, a revolutionary reform that I, you know. So step by step, yeah. we move towards transforming institutions such that they are no longer recognizably what they were. Right. So we turn yeah. a, um, you know, so the Mondragon is a good example of this in Spain, right? So you take a what was a factory or some of the factories in Argentina that got uh, got cooperatized around the 2000 yeah. 2001 crisis, right. and actually they never got never went back to being a traditional family factories right they're yeah. still sort yeah. of um run on this sort of um more egalitarian i won't necessarily call it an anarchist model because different people have different right. understandings of that term and, and it's but but definitely something closer to a more egalitarian model and when it comes to decision making when it comes to profit making and so on and a more communitarian model in that they have to you know the people around them have to like them they can't be dumping yeah. and so on everywhere right um so, yeah, you know, those basic principles, right? So let's talk about egalitarianism within the workplace. Let's talk about communitarianism, meaning that we're, we'd be good, um, we play nice where we live, right? We don't pollute, we do things nicely. And, yeah. you know, if, yeah. there are many jobs that currently exist that could exist within such a future framework. Um, but there are also many jobs that just shouldn't exist. <laughs> like, I don't think we need as many corporate yeah, lawyers as yeah. we currently have, right? Um, but you know so but this but all i'm saying is that there are there are steps that have been taken again look at mondragon in spain look at some of these places in argentina look at many places um you know look at cooperative uh farms and cooperative uh stores like grocery stores in canada and the u.s like this all kinds of kinds of models that already exist that are already doing this and all i'm saying is that we can begin to make those revolutionary changes um revolutionary revolutionary reforms one step at a time you know immediately and i don't know where that's going to get us i don't know if it's ever going to be i don't know if you're ever going to take on goldman sachs with that kind of incrementalist approach um but i do think you can you can at least begin to build up power in such a base so let's let's play that thought experiment for a little while let's say there's a goldman sachs base and there's a mondragon base right (laughs) Yeah, and let's say yeah. suddenly everyone who's using this Mondragon model, which is in fact what it's what it's called, a lot of people are using the Mondragon model to create, um, you know, better businesses. Um, so yeah. let's say there yeah. there is this association of people who loose association of independent worker-owned businesses that loosely use the Mondragon model. That somehow, in co- you know, at the moment, let's say there's a hundred thousand people around the world who are part of that. Let's say in in five years' time or ten years' time, that can be a million. I know that's framing big, but maybe not that big. Um, now, if you have a million people, you know, mostly probably in the global north, who feel strongly about this and who have an organized base, I, I mean, that's something. I mean, you can you can talk about making some pretty meaningful changes at that point, no? Yeah. So in that, yeah. So the key to getting, you know, at some point there would be a confrontation, but not necessarily that soon. I don't know. But then the, so the key is like to not get co-opted and to not start to insert co- competitive and what was the other problem? 
com- commodified commodification logic into yeah. your yeah into yeah. your own um, institution, which people will often do just by habit and uh, not realizing that that's what they're doing because they just think they're doing best practices or sound yeah. business practices or efficient. Yes. Yeah, so the Mondragon stuff sort of begins to deal with the competition, but it doesn't deal so much with the commodification. So I think yeah. I think there we have to talk about um, different kind of collectives and cooperatives that may be about reforestation. Um, some of the reforestation efforts I've yeah. seen all over the world um, have been really impressive. So, you know, I, I, that's sort of yeah. what's, you know, mangrove planting efforts in coastal areas and so on to reclaim land even. Like there's really fascinating ideas. Like you say, there's no shortage of proposals. Um, but trying yeah, to do these in yeah. a coordinated part of the problem, um, Justin is like, we're all sort of, we feel the system makes us feel isolated. So if I have a stupid yeah. idea that I want to, you know, start planting mangroves <laughs> yeah. in, in, in Malaysia, in, a, in an area that's been overrun by palm oil plantations, um, I may yeah. feel that I'm alone, but yeah. you know, there may be a hundred or a thousand or even a hundred thousand of people who are in sympathy with what I'm doing or who would want to do it themselves. And so I think it's, you know, I think the internet and other places, of course, social media is a whole other story, but there are ways through which we can have these, we can make these connections and we can start building these cooperatives to start building that society based on cooperation, based on stewardship of the commons. We can start doing that today. There's nothing really to stop us, although to do it at scale, we will need countries to buy in. Um, but on a smaller scale, I think we can all start today.